This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Well, it was another weekend uh, and another couple of incidents, at least a couple of incidents, of, uh, so we say, misadventure at Hamilton Waterfalls. Webster's Falls, there had to be a rescue, Albion Falls, and this is, of course, just a couple of weeks after a fatality that occurred. But this is going on every weekend now. Every time you come in on Monday, we have this plethora of stories about people that are walking through these waterfalls, ignoring danger signs, ignoring safety signs, and carrying on. And yes, some of them are rope rescues, some of them are just injuries, some of them are fatalities. What the heck is going on and what are we going to do about this? This is not a new issue. This has been going on, well, you know, the waterfalls have been there for a million years, and long before we were here. Tom Jackson is the counselor for Ward 6. That's the East Mountain, of course, uh, where Albion Falls is located. And uh, he has been championing this uh, cause for the last uh, number of years now, trying to find some solutions. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Hey, Tom, how are you this morning? Bill, trusting you and your family had a safe weekend. Well, yeah, you know what? I, I, I pride myself in you know, my ability to look at a sign that says, danger, don't do something. Oh, more often than not, Tom, I'm, I may be a little slow from time to time on some things, but you know, when I see a sign like that, I tend to say, maybe I shouldn't do that. I'm not so sure people are smart enough to follow the signs anymore. Well, Bill, we um, <clears throat> sort of take you back to this uh, past Friday where um, the uh, team that I've uh, put together from several departments and I, uh, it was a rain shower morning, so in one way it was good because there were no visitors. Telbian Falls this past Friday was thunderstorming like crazy, but we had our umbrellas out. <laughs> was doing it yesterday, too, Tom, but people still did it. Yeah, fair enough. It did for about an hour, but then it got nice and sunny again later afternoon. Anyways, uh, so on Friday, just to give you a quick recap, Bill, and try to bring you up to speed on some of the measures we're, we're, uh, we're working on. Um, so Friday we did our walkabout, and we had some statistics in front of us as to two or three areas where the rope rescues seem to be occurring more regularly and more often. And so what we're uh, doing, Bill, is... Over the weekend, uh, we had uh, put up some uh, temporary orange uh, fencing by the city, particularly right at the uh, top of where those uh, concrete steps are and where the signs are. And um, uh, over the next few weeks, Bill, we're uh, under emergency procedures. We're, um, park staff are going to be ordering some permanent um, chain-link fencing, both for the area right above where those steps are, coming along Mud Street down to where those steps are, and uh, uh, and cordoning off uh, a particular area right above the uh, falls, at the top of the falls. There, one section is completely fenced off on all sides. One section has a couple of open spots just fenced off on one side, and at the top, the, I call it the North Parking Lot, Bill, where the uh, Heritage Stone is out up there, and where the two lookout platforms that the city built are. Where the lookout platforms are and coming back towards Mountain Brow Boulevard, where the city sidewalk is, there is no fencing along there. And we've had some incidents along there where people have veered off onto what I'll call human-made trails, not sanctioned by the city or not even marked by the Bruce Trail Association with their blue markings that they do on trees and posts, but just beaten down paths over the years that people have ventured off to in spite of signs that may say um, danger, steep slope, even poison ivy. So we're going to be erecting some permanent uh, fencing, Bill, in those two or three strategic spots. Along with that, Bill, the consensus by the team, and when I say team, the emergency responders, risk management, municipal law, parks people, conservation authority people, communications, were all at my table this past Friday, and we're consulting with the Bruce Trail Association. Simultaneously with the fencing, Bill, we're looking at signs, two types of signs. One will be a more stronger no trespassing 
type of sign, which we have in community parks late at night, things like that. This is obviously unique in terms of these are the the complete jurisdiction of the city and our parks department. So maybe the type of thing of the no trespassing beyond this point, you could be subject to certain... And secondly, Bill, along with what I've been calling the shock signs, danger beyond this point, X number of rescues have occurred. So, Bill, those are the kind of measures over the next few weeks where uh, we'll be implementing in a more permanent way. All right, but, you know, I, I heard a report, and I'm sure you did this morning, Tom, here on CHML, that uh, even with the temporary fencing that you put up, uh, somebody took a shot, and I guess it's on social media now, they just ripped it down. They just ripped the fencing down, and there's a picture of a guy in the paper today who's beyond that barrier, having a yep. selfie of himself in a very dangerous and precarious situation. Okay. Uh, how do you legislate against stupid? Well, Bill, I'll tell you, um, for the person or persons, because, by the way, after uh, the rainstorm yesterday and after my events were over in unrelated locations, I decided, and when I heard from Chief Cunliffe, about thank the Lord for the fortunate rescue of the lobe with the nine-year-old boy, who I understand is going to be overall all right. I decided to drive over there, and I parked on Arbor Road right across from uh, the top of the falls, and I walked over, and I watched Bill for about an hour. I watched dozens and dozens and dozens of people um, going down the steps, ignoring the signs, going down on these uh, beaten pathways, human-made pathways, right to the top of the falls to where the, um, where the rock ledges are. I watched one guy standing on the rock ledge, turning himself around, doing a selfie uh, as the water's spilling over on the rock ledge where he was. And it's obvious uh, to me, Bill, first of all, the person or persons who removed the orange fencing, that's tampering with city property. So if they had been caught at that moment, they could have been charged because that's city property that they tampered with. And secondly, what they did was uh, ridiculously... They reopened an area that we were trying to cordon off until we put some more permanent measures in place. So anyways, Bill, you're right. Some people are still going to do things and ignore them, but I've, we've got to be seen as a city of Hamilton, our corporation, on behalf of taxpayers, Bill. I think we've got to be seen to at least trying to implement some additional measures that will make it safer uh, for people overall enjoying these beautiful areas. And I don't have a problem with that. You know, for for years now, uh, you know, the city and, and, and some private individuals, I mean, Chris Eglin comes to mind, uh, went out of their way to promote this as the city of waterfalls. We have, as everyone seems to know, I think by now, more natural waterfalls within our city limits than any other city in the world. And it's magnificent. And, you know, there are websites that talk about this. And, you know, I'm glad that people are gravitating to this and coming to see this. It's great. But, you know, this is a safety issue here. Well, and, I, and and I know you at the city and yourself, Tom, have been pretty good about this. And you've been rather as diplomatic as you can about this of trying to find a balance here. But now I think we have to deal with an element of people that are just thumbing their nose at you and the city and saying, I don't give a damn what you say. I'm going to do what I bloody well want. I, I appreciate the acknowledgement, Bill, of trying to strike that balance because I still truly believe, Bill, the overwhelming majority of the public want to enjoy these areas for picnic and walking in safe uh, areas and not to go into more dangerous, riskier areas. So for the overwhelming majority to suddenly restrict, prohibit, to be punitive, I think would would be the wrong move to go in that in totality in that direction. But you're right, trying to strike a balance, and now obviously you have to going a little more into stronger measures and more permanent measures. Bill, back to my observation yesterday, if I could, please. I it was obvious to me too, watching the dozens of people 
I look like from all walks of life and all ages, coming off the brow and going down these beaten paths. It's obvious to me the psychology of the people. Now, I saw nobody kind of holding each other as they were getting closer to the cliff's edge. I saw nobody with consternation looks on their faces. All I saw were people laughing, enjoying, giddy. And I thought to myself, the psychology of people exploring a cutesy little in their mind, Albion Falls, it's not like Niagara Falls, that they would never, ever even worry about slipping, falling, being injured, causing themselves some permanent harm. It's obvious to me that psychology and that behavior is something we have to work on and changing as well, Bill. Only because it's not as big. I mean, I mean that again speaks to the mindset of the individuals. And, and I, Tom, I share your concern with the the people that have been injured, and and my you know, condolences to to those that actually have lost their lives doing this. But for God's sakes, it just seems as if you know people just don't seem to care about public safety. And I'm glad you brought up the example of Niagara Falls. And I'm not trying to equate Albion Falls or Webster's or the Devil's Punch Bowl to Niagara Falls, but you know as well as I do that if you step on the other side of that wall and say, well, I'm going to get a better shot, they've got you within 10 seconds, and you're arrested. Yes, Bill. You're arrested. Not just to get a little slap on the wrist and say, oh, Tom, you shouldn't do that. You're, you're going. You're going to get fined. You're going to, they're going to do something about this. It's public mischief, and that's what's happening here now. I think I, I understand that you don't want to be punitive, but at the same time, sometimes you have to do that. I mean, you can put up all the great big signs on the link of the Red Hill that says that's the speed limit. It's not working. And at some point, you have to say, well, then we have to be punitive to the people that are going to ignore those rules. You're right, Bill. And that's where now we're going by consensus of the team. We're going into these more stronger measures of the no trespassing signs, uh, bylaw, parks bylaw, ordinance, uh, subject to. We're going to go there along with the uh, more impactful shock signs, the permanent fencing. It also, though, struck me, Bill, that watching people who wanted to get closer to nature, and again, I'm not condoning what people did, what I observed yesterday, but like I did 11, 12 years ago, Bill, in getting some money through the Future Fund at that time, and you were on council and very supportive, which I was grateful for, you and Mur- uh, Cal- former Councillor Murray Ferguson, we got a half a million dollars through the Future Fund mm-hmm. to build those two lookout platforms yep. at the North parking lot where the Heritage Stone is there at Albion Falls. So I thought to myself, you know what, a longer-term project, maybe over the next year or two with proper design and engineering, maybe along the Mud Street, I'll call it the south end of the falls, coming down Mud Street, if there's opportunity there to build something like a lookout platform there, maybe some safe stairway that again, engineering design, sanctioned by the city, a permanent structure, getting you closer to the falls, like at Niagara Falls with the gorge, but at some point, there's no way you can go past it even if you wanted to. It struck me that people want to get close to nature, but given the way they're doing it right now, I cannot condone that, but maybe there's a project that we can implement that allows people to get more safely closer down the road, Bill. Do they want to get closer to nature, or is this exhibitionism, to simply say, I want a selfie for Facebook that shows me on the edge of a cliff? Well, for those risk-takers, Bill, that just don't give a darn, there's nothing that Tom Jackson or Bill Kelly can do to save them from themselves. I'm convinced of that. But for those people and those families that are out enjoying the day and for some reason feel that, oh, this pathway uh, seems natural, it seems even though there's no Bruce Trail markings, and the city has said, please don't go beyond this point, but it seems like many over the years have, there's got to be possibly some way like we did with the lookout platforms to give people maybe a little bit of a closer but still safer view. 
Well, I, and I get that. And, and you can build all the platforms you want. But, I mean, how do you account for people that are simply going to say to heck with it, I'm going to do this? I mean, you know, my wife, Rebecca, grew up right by the the, the, the the devil's punch bowl. I mean, you know, they used to do the same stuff we used to do at Albion Falls when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time doing it. But they go over there now and you just, she was just a st- somebody actually on the other side leaning over so they can get a picture taken. I mean, come on. You know, what? where is the common sense here? Bill, it's funny when you say about your wife, Rebecca, uh, the number of anecdotal stories that many of my constituents have told me in light of some of the recent incidents and what seems to be a little more of a rash of incidents the last few years at many of our waterfalls, including Albion in my area, the number of anecdotal stories of people who have been generational Hamiltonians have said, Tom, I went to the Albion Falls for years. I knew where to go, where not to go, never had an incident. So, you know, in light of those stories, Bill, it's obvious to me as well that there may be Hamiltonians within our city, within our borders, and obviously many visitors beyond our borders. It's a new breed. It's a new area of people who just aren't paying closer attention, may not be as familiar, not reading the signs, but again, just thinking no harm will come to them and just getting close to this nice little cutesy city community type waterfalls. And then, sadly, unfortunately, some incidents and rope rescues are occurring. Bill, I'm working towards stronger measures, both from a, from, a, from a penalty standpoint with the no trespassing, which will give police and bylaw greater teeth if somebody goes beyond that point and they observe them, like we have in any of our parks. And secondly, the more permanent structures right now. I've got to change behavior, and I've got to stem the tide of what's happening here, unfortunately, Bill, because overall the majority of people are enjoying these prestigious areas. You know where this is going, Tom. You've been in public office long enough to understand that you've done everything. You've built these platforms. You've put signage up. you put fencing up. It's the same as the example I used just a couple of minutes ago. You know, council decided, well, we'll put larger speed limit signs on the Red Hill on the link. It didn't do a damn bit of good. I was down there on Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was downbound on the Red Hill, but I could see an upbound. There had to be about six or seven police officers had cars pulled over onto the side. There were more cars on the side of the road than were on the road. And, and you know, at some point you simply have to say, okay, you're not going to pay attention to the laws, then we're going to have to nail you, and you're going to pay for it. And that, com- that, that comes down, that's one word, that's enforcement. And you know that this, uh, that's where it's, it's going here. You know that at some point this council is going to have to say, nobody's paying attention, we're going to have to do enforcement. And that's going to be costly and it's going to cause a lot of grief, but it's all because these people just don't pay attention and don't give a darn. Well, Bill, you've kind of summarized where the consensus of my team was on Friday, and that's why we're moving in this direction. I I want to say sincerely, Bill, I've been reluctant to go down the heavy-hand approach, but I've got to do something to break the psychology and hopefully change behavior of the people that are visiting the falls for their own protection down the road. But I don't want to make it so restrictive that, you know, we're putting up 20-foot brick walls that nobody can even see the falls. So... But we are going to head down more of the uh, of the measures, Bill, of implementing uh, structures, signs, and greater enforcement, as you're suggesting, might get the message across in a stronger way. Councillor Tom Jackson uh, from the East Mountain up on Ward 6. Tom, thanks as always. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. And, and listen, I, I share Councillor Jackson's sentiments. I don't want to see them starting erecting big walls and barriers and don't go here and, you know, put somebody's hands on your shoulder. You can't. But look, at, if it happens, and I don't want it to see, but if it does get to that, don't blame city council for making this. Don't blame pity police or bylaw officers. Blame these clowns that are ignoring the rules that are already there and climbing over and tearing down the fences that are already there because they 
in their zeal to get on Facebook and to try to do their own little selfie are ruining it for everybody. And that's that's the real tragedy here. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yet another survey has come out that suggests that the pressure on men to be providers is one of the reasons why men have much higher suicide rates than women do, especially in certain age demographics. Why does this happen? Are men putting too much pressure on themselves? Is this thing about being the breadwinner, which I think we could actually talk about as to whether or not that's actually still a truism? Is that putting way too much pressure on males? Let's bring Theo Sellis into the conversation, registered family therapist, and of course the president of Integrity Works. His website's always a great resource to go to to get uh, some fascinating and thought-provoking information. Uh, Theo, thanks so much for the time. How are you doing, my friend? Well, I was in, in person at, uh, at UMO Field yesterday, Bill, you know, watching the Argos thump the Ticats, so I'm doing well. How are you? Uh, did you happen to catch the game? I, I Yes, I did. I did. Um, <laughs> uh, interesting. Uh, you know, from an energy conservation standpoint, since hardly any of the Tiger Cats uh, worked up a sweat to deserve a shower, I think we saved an awful lot of money at BMO Field yesterday anyway. But I digress. And then there's 17 more games to go and all those other cliches. Uh, and thank heavens we didn't put a bet on that. All, when you and I do bet on these things, we must say, obviously, I mean, you know, you're, 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 you, when you lose, which is most of the time to me, it goes to the children's fund. And, of course, uh, if I were to ever lose, and that's a hypothetical, of course, yes. uh, it goes to your Wildlife Federation uh, charity, yes. too. So it's all for a good cause. It is true. And well, maybe we'll, we'll get that going by Labor Day, I'm sure, because that's, uh, that's when the next time these guys meet. Listen, uh, give, give me some ideas as to how you feel about this, because there's so many things when I see statistics like this, and one of the things I always enjoy about our talks, Theo, is because you peel back the layers on just the numbers here and talk about why things are the way they are and perceptions, and, and, and maybe you know sometimes it's, it's these perceptions or maybe misperceptions that are putting so much pressure on us. If, if in fact it's true, and, and you know that, that's up for debate as well, that one of the reasons that males have a higher suicide rate is because they put pressure on themselves to be the breadwinner. Uh, is is that really a, a legitimate pressure, or is that just a perceived pressure that males seem to be putting on themselves? Well, it's interesting. There, there's lots of reasons why men tend to kill themselves more than women. Um, women attempt me way more times, like three to four times more often than men. Men are uh, much more likely to be quote-unquote, successful at uh, committing suicide in women. There's lots of different reasons for that. And the idea that um, one of the reasons why they end up killing themselves more because of the pressure of being a provider or a breadwinner, I mean, that's that's an interesting one. I mean, you would think that socially that should change because uh, it's kind of a mythology that men are the breadwinners now as opposed to women. But I think that that is an idea that men have that is something that they take on in terms of being providers and breadwinners. Uh, rightly or wrongly, it's been part of their identity. Men oftentimes do identify very much with their jobs. And so if they lose their job or they're not able to provide, uh, and they put a lot of emphasis on that as being somehow, that's who I am. You know, what you, who are you? Well, I am I. And they talk about it in terms of their career. And when you when they get together with other men, they tend to talk maybe less about children, but they talk about their careers. And they, so they talk less maybe about parenting and nurturing and friendships, but more about their jobs. There's, Maybe if women get together and talk, they may talk about their careers, but they might talk a lot more about their friends and their children more. So if you if you have taken that on as your identity, and then that part of your identity is threatened, then you're left with who am I and what's my purpose? Uh, what what really is the point of me being around? What value do I have? But is that our fault then? Because if we, if males tend to identify and define themselves 
by who they are. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a broadcaster. I'm a teacher. I'm a whatever the case might be. Uh, are you setting yourself up for that sort of depression and 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 consternation? Because at some point, statistics tell us that that job, that career that we've defined ourselves with, uh, is probably going to change, and that's going to knock us off our pedestal. Yeah, and, and that's increasingly happening. The idea of, of maintaining one job for a long period of time um, uh, becomes less and less likely. People cycle through different jobs and different careers. And so if that's who you are, then you are going to be more consistently threatened. Um, you know, who? What's, what's the point of view? What purpose do you have? Um, so that that's true. So if, if that's if that's how you've come to think of yourself, that your value has to be oriented around to what you do, and what you do is limited more towards career, then that does put you at greater risk. I mean, that's we're just talking about that article and talking about what and one risk that's been identified. There's more risk. Oh, than sure. That, but but that that's the what the author is trying to get at. I think. Well, it's interesting, and because you look at this from the other side now. And in other words, if men wanted to uh, alleviate that pressure and if men wanted to lessen the opportunities of, of falling into a deep depression and perhaps even suicide attempts, uh, we've got to get out of this mindset that uh, we are defined by what we do. And, and uh, as I was reading this the story, I, I, I don't know how I came up with this bizarre twist, but I, I can't help but think about John Lennon, uh, who, you know, one of the great musicians, of the, the Beatles, etc., who just at one stage in his life back in the 1970s just decided, I'm just going to be a house husband. I don't need the stage. I don't need the recording studio. And for about six or seven years, and he seemed quite happy and content living in New York, raising his son. Uh, and, and I thought, wow, how many guys could actually do that and, and do it of their own volition, not because they were forced to? Uh, maybe if, if we had that sort of a mindset where we, where we could shift gears like that, it, it might make a, a whole different approach. Yeah, and I think... You know, I think there's been some social movement towards that. I think, for instance, looking at uh, child leave after uh, a birth, you know, using paternal leave as opposed to, uh, uh, I should say, parental leave as opposed to maternal leave. And so there's a recognition that both parents are important and that uh, that so there's value in having uh, either of the parents home with children. I think that's that's a move in the right direction. So. You know, I, I you know I do still think there is that residue though of when men are at home, and here we're talking about in general, right? Yeah. Many people listening will go, "Well, that's not me," and I understand it. We're just talking in general, general mentality. You know that that oftentimes the idea is that when men are at home, they're still still seen as like helping out. It's it's, it's sort of like yeah, I'm helping out my partner, my wife, or at at home by you know babysitting. <laughs> I remember remember pulling my son around in a. And his wagon used to do that all over the place when he was little, drag him around. And I remember sometimes people would say, oh, I see you're uh, babysitting. I'm a father. Like, I'm being a father. I'm not babysitting, right? So there's still this idea that, that men at home are helping out as opposed to that's just as much a part of who they are and their value as they are when they're outside of the home. And by the way, I know that people are going to hear about my John Lennon analogy and say, well, yeah, when you have more money than anybody else in the world, it's easy to stay at home for five or six years. But that's not the point. Uh, and I'm sure that money's a factor, but it, the point was that his ego didn't need to be in front of people or recording. I didn't need to be John Lennon, the musician, uh, and, I, and I was able to transition like that. Are, are men incapable of, of making those sorts of changes, uh, Theo, to, to understand that in everybody's life there are going to be life changes? Uh, are women more able to handle those changes than men? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing that you brought up with ego is, is I've never had... Um 
in a in my in couples counseling, I've never had a woman say that they were worried or upset or felt uh, somehow diminished because their husband made more money than them. But I've heard quite often men being uncomfortable talking about how their wives made more money than them and how they felt threatened by that or felt kind of inferior or didn't feel like they were like you know the leader in the relationship. So why why is that? Well, I, I get. I, I just think that that's that's. Um, many, 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 many years of socialization. Um, and, and maybe there is an evolutionary component to it as well in terms of like, you know, the men providing or feeling like they have this strong protective provider, leader of the family protecting them. Maybe that's still part of who men's identity as well is. And then I think that's important also when we talk about this. I think the, the answer is not to say, ah, oh, you men, you've, that's, you know, give that up and, 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 you know, you're not the providers anymore and you, you know, women are equal providers. I think the idea is to still honor that about that. That's a great thing that men oftentimes feel this pride in providing, um, but also help them take pride in other aspects of being a man. That being a man is not limited to that particular role. That being a man uh, is also about being nurturing and being uh, loving towards their relationships and friendships and their and their children and and sort of see them sort of expand the role. So the I, feel, I hear a lot of men talk about how they feel kind of like diminished or, or threatened or emasculated. They really feel resentful in a way because they feel like something important is being taken away from them, rightly or wrongly, uh, but they, they have that feeling. So the idea is not to have them sort of feel like they have to give that up. You can say, you can honor that and say, and you have all these other aspects about who you are that are important to your identity as well. Your, your worth isn't just defined by one thing. But, but it, I can see... That that aspect of this, that if if you do make that 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 you know definition of yourself and say, well, I'm you know this is what I do, this is what I've I've been trained to do, this is what I've done all my life. When you lose that, there's got to be that feeling as you're driving home after, you know, they they send you out of the office with that little yeah. box of all your belongings, or you you know somebody escorts you out of the mill that you're working in, or whatever the case might be. That you got to there's there's a question. Maybe you're not phrasing it this way, but the question going in your head is, well, who am I now? Yeah, no, and I think that's true. I think that's why uh, retirement can be much more of a threat to men than women. Men oftentimes struggle with retirement. You know, like what what what's the point? What do I do? Whereas women oftentimes have all these different things going on. Again, we're talking about in general, but women oftentimes have these different things going on in terms of like relationships or spending more time with their grandkids and maybe more spending more time volunteering and all that. Oftentimes, men have this like abrupt sort of culture shock. Like, what you know, what's now? What, what what do I do? You know, and women will talk about, oh my goodness, what. Life is going to be hell when he's home more often because he doesn't. He seems so unhappy. He seems so irritated. He's like miserable. He doesn't know what to do with himself, kind of thing. So, so there still is that idea that that who you are as a guy is is uh, basically the job that you do, and then it doesn't have to be that way. But that's you know that's what the article is getting at. I think. How do you how do you ease them out of that? I mean, if you've got a couple that's that's presenting like that. Uh, it, and as you say, maybe they fall into those stereotypes that we've talked about, you know, where, where the woman doesn't seem to, to have too much of a concern about this, but the man has de- this definition that I, I need to be the breadwinner. I need to be uh, the, the person, even if, in fact, it's not from a monetary standpoint, the one that, that you know, makes the decisions, says, here's where we're going on holidays, here's my paycheck, I'm paying the mortgage, uh, and on and on it goes like that. It, it's... How do you how do you break that mold and and try to get people to see that there's there there's much more at stake here? Yeah, you know what I I, I don't challenge the uh, again I, I I certainly honor the the pride the pride in that position. I, you know I don't I don't try to challenge that. But what I do is I, I'll invite them to encourage a couple other things. I'll, I'll encourage them 
uh, first of all, to talk a little bit about what kind of pressure that has put on them. That, that you know, that oftentimes there's a lot of pressure. And so, what would it be like to not have that pressure anymore? What, what would it be like to kind of let that go a little bit and let someone else be there for you and care for you a little bit like that, or like, you know, like share that? What's, what would you like to share that a little bit? And what would it be like for you to talk about that? And that's often an issue too. But men will oftentimes have all these kind of feelings, right? But they're not necessarily all that great at being able to talk about what that's like for them, those kind of thoughts. And when you start. When you start talking about it, when you start sort of putting those thoughts out loud, the thoughts kind of seem a little silly when you speak them. You know, like, that it would, it would be okay if you made more money than her, but it would be, it's not okay if she makes more money than you. Well, let's talk about that. Does that really make sense? And when you start putting it out there, and well, then it's like, yeah, maybe that doesn't make sense, right? So it's, it's sort of like getting that reality check. And oftentimes, those guys don't allow themselves to have that reality check from a third party because they tend to kind of keep those things to themselves. And so I'll... So I'll, I'll get them to be able to put that out, and then it's like, oh, yeah, maybe that's not such a big deal. And then we'll start talking a little bit about, well, if pride is important to you and being important and having value is important to you, well, let's talk a little bit about other things that you could feel pride about and have value in and what would that be like for you and uh, what would be like, for instance, for your for your kids to see a little bit more, your grandkids to see a little bit more, and what could you do, uh, what kind of role would you play? And uh, you know, it, and so, so it sort of like expands. So, so instead of kind of taking it away from them and saying, oh, that's, that's ridiculous, that's a thing of the past, it's a dinosaur, this whole provider thing. You know, it's like, honor that. It's great that you feel that. It's great that you feel that it's important to be able to provide for your family. That's, that's awesome. But other, what other ways could you feel proud of, and how other ways could you be there for your family besides that? <laughs> We've, I think, spent a lot more time, and I'm glad to hear this, about talking about mental health issues and, uh, and and the awareness of this and dealing with this and, and maybe being more forthright about and forthcoming with some of these things and, and getting people to talk about this. But but when you look at suicide rates, that's that's taking it to the extreme, obviously, Theo. I mean, there can be steps along the way, depression and, and so many other different things. What is it that, that drives somebody to that extreme to, to take that? Is, is it hopelessness? Is, is, is that the, the last card that's dealt there that, that moves people in that direction? Yeah, that's essentially, that's, a, that's really key, that, that. But lots of times people feel down. And, and I, I, I try to help my clients understand there's a difference between like emotions and thoughts. So lots of times people feel, you know, sadness and they feel afraid and you might feel angry and all that. Those are, those are feelings. And they confuse those with as if uh, hopelessness and suicidal, feeling suicidal. They'll talk about feeling suicidal and feeling hopeless, as if they're also feelings. And I said, feel. It's not really true that you feel suicidal. Is that you think suicidal? You don't feel hopeless. You think hopeless. For sure, you have these feelings of sadness and feeling lonely and feeling afraid. But it's, lots of people have those feelings, but they don't think of it in terms of I. There's no way out for me. There's no choice. It's always going to be this way. And so I, the most logical step for me then is to kill myself. It's, so you might have those feelings, but what is it that leads you to think that the necessary thing for you to do is kill yourself? Why do you think that you have to, that there's no possible end to this? And so it's the component of when people get to the hopelessness thing. Uh, that's the issue. Lots of people feel these feelings, have these emotions being down. But what, what's leading you to think that there's no way out? And why do you think there's absolutely no hope for you? Why do you think that there's no one there to turn to? Why do you think you can't talk about that? You can, you can start challenging those ideas, those beliefs. Uh, it's really important to be able to, to sort of deal with it on those terms because it's not, you can have all those feelings, but there's many, many other things once you start talking about it, many resources, many connections, many ways that you go about not ending up thinking that you have to kill yourself and then acting on it. 
Theo Sellis, uh, President uh, and CEO, of course, of Integrity Works. Uh, go to the website, by the way, and just Google it. There's always some great links there to the uh, things that we talk about on this program. Thanks, as always, my friend. Great having you on the show again. You're welcome, Bill. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we've uh, talked about the seemingly ultimate demise of Sears Canada, of course, uh, for some time now. There has been concern about uh, what's happening with that company. And uh, clearly, we got an indication of that with the announcement last week about store closures, uh, one of which is going to be in this area, the uh, retail store, the outlet store, rather, up in uh, uh, the Meadowlands in Ancaster, I guess, is uh, slated for closure. Uh, there may be others in the future. We don't know about that yet. But you know that there are always a domino effect to these sorts of things. And and one of them is going to be the impact it's going to have on the retail sector. Uh, for instance, uh, what if you're a landlord at, um, oh, say, Lime Ridge Mall or some of the other many malls uh, right now that have a Sears location as one of their anchor stores? What happens? Now, some of those are going to be closing down, and that's going to cause a problem. Uh, with the way we shop, it's going to have a problem with uh, the, well, maybe even the existence of, of retail outlet malls and and shopping malls in general, because, uh, well, that was the template that was used for oh, generations, I guess, now. So what are we going to do about this? Uh, how, what, what kind of an impact? Well, let's talk with Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGood School of Business at McMaster University, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Good morning, Marvin. How are you today? I am great, thank you, Bill. This was the way. I mean, I was raised on this. I mean, we had well, it wasn't kind of a mall then, but there was the center way back when with uh, Simpson Sears, at one end, and uh, Morgan's, which became Robinson's, uh, which uh, became, I forget what else after that. But but they were structured in such a way that there were two major stores, usually at either end. If you had a mega mall, there might be one in the middle, too. And then all these little stores, the smaller stores in between. But it was all based on that premise that, well, those stores are going to be there forever, so we're going to be in good shape no matter what. It kind of looks like the landscape's changing. Mm-hmm. So uh, take you back even farther, Bill, from before you were even a lad. If I go back a couple of thousand years ago, there was another word for those malls. We called them marketplaces. Ah. And you had the agora, so to speak, the, the market in Greek times and Roman times, which is where the merchants gathered, and thus the consumers came to do trade. So the malls have been around for 2,000 years, but the key to understanding them is that they evolved to keep up with their times. Now, the version that you just talked about so fondly is really a version from the 1950s, so yeah. to speak. I know you were just one year old at the time, but uh, <laughs> or even less than that. You weren't even, you were just a figment of someone's imagination at that time. But that was the concept in the 1950s, thanks to cars. The idea was that you and I needed to need a magnet to attract our car, so we'll create a mall and we'll put these anchor stores. They'll act as the magnet for traffic. These anchor stores were usually big um, department stores. Uh, you mentioned uh, Simpson Sears, but Eaton's could have been in there, oh, yeah. or it could have been a, a Woolworths or a Woolco, and, and we'll go there. And then if we're not completely satisfied by the big department store, as we travel from one to the other, we would pass by a series of specialty shops, and they would gather our money one way or the other. And that was, that was the design of the malls, and, and didn't really change that much, really until about, I'd say, 20 years ago. In the 1990s, we began to see this concept evolve once again. So if I can use an example of a mall that uh, has struggled over the years here in Hamilton, that's Lloyd Jackson Square. Um, If you think hard about it right now, they don't really have an anchor tenant, which is a department store. Used to, when Eaton's was there. When Eaton's was there, but today they don't have that. There is a heart there, which is a a small department store uh, coming out of uh, the East Coast. I would actually argue the biggest anchors in that uh, development are the the global the uh, nation's food market at the one end and the 
uh, Hamilton Farmers Market in the at the other end of the mall. But what really that mall works on is a vibrant downtown core where you have office towers filled with people, people who at lunchtime need a quick place to grab a bite, who need to pick up a few items, what have you. And this is how we're seeing uh, malls start to evolve, that they're going to have to be a hub of activity, not necessarily generated by your anchor store. So I think as you look forward over the next 20 years, we're going to see malls that are connected to condo developments. They could be connected to transit hubs. You can imagine as we build the LRT, we might incorporate a transit hub into a mall. That's going to bring traffic. It could be also offices, uh, uh, buildings now not filled with people living there, but people working there. Those will get incorporated in the malls as, as the big department stores just are not the attraction they once were. So Jackson Square was visionary, I guess, in 1970 then, so when they started building it. <laughs> well, it was. Now, mind you, when they first built it, as you point out, Eaton's was there, and, and there was talk of actually bringing some other anchor tenants there. Robinson's wasn't that far away. And, and of course, those, unfortunately, have met their demise. And it did go through a rough time. You and I can remember going through Jackson Square when it was a bit of a ghost town. Oh, yeah. We thought, oh, my gosh, maybe the smartest thing to do is demolish it. But they didn't. They kept looking for the formula, and that was really the formula, a revitalized downtown core that had people, in this case, all uh, uh, working in that area and then living not that far away. If we can think of some of the new condo developments downtown, whether it's the Royal Connaught or the, the Revenue Canada building that was brought back to life or even there was a Bell building not far from City Hall that was brought back to life as condos, those people now are the anchor. They're now the magnet that draw people to the malls. But was it more than coincidental, though, that uh, as, as Jackson Square started to deteriorate and stores started to leave, and we saw a lot of, uh, you know, papered over uh, st smaller stores in there anyway, just around the same time that uh, the businesses started leaving Stelco Tower, including Stelco, as a matter of fact, who moved their head office to Toronto, it just seemed as, as if that, that office tower population started to, to decrease. So also did the business downstairs in the in the mall itself. Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. That I'm not sure what the chicken is and what's the egg here, but those two things happened at almost the exact same time. Another variation on the mall, of course, is what's happened to what was known as Center Mall. Yeah. And you can remember the big space that was there. Uh, that was all torn down, and instead we have a, a collection of what we call big box stores. There are still magnets there. There's a Walmart there, for instance, which is a department store that attracts people. But now it's the convenience of having these specialty stores with sort of an interior parking space. Uh, in your commentary about the store that's going to close, the Sears stores is going to close, it's up in the Meadowlands, which is another one of those developments. Not really a mall, per se, but a different way of approaching It's retail. a destination, though, isn't it? It's a destination, nonetheless. And that situation, fueled by a very large uh, suburban community around it, houses and houses and houses, as far as the eye can see, needing a retail core. And so this is the evolution I think you're going to see. Now, as Sears goes, and, and I, I mean, again, I want to be clear, I hope that Sears can find a way forward. I believe the strategy that we're seeing evolving is that maybe a smaller Sears uh, can somehow survive, but they'll have to go from 154 stores maybe down to as few as 50 or 60. Maybe that smaller footprint is a way for them to survive. But if I am the Cadillac Fairviews of the world or the Rio Cans or the other companies that own these big mall spaces, I have to get rethinking again my model. If you can remember at Burlington Mall, there was a large target. When the target went, they said, what are we going to do with that space? And there wasn't any one retailer that wanted to come forward. So instead, what's, a, what's beginning to emerge there is they're dividing that big store into smaller chunks. 
and they're hoping to sell it again as a destination, but not due to one big store, but to the collection of stores that happen to be there. Is that viable? Uh, I mean, because these guys, uh, you know, the Cadillac Fairviews and the Rio Cans, et cetera, that have invested a lot of money into these places over the last number of years, have, have got to be getting a little nervous at this stage when they see this happening. Yes, and I, I think correctly so. Uh, again, let me give you a different set of statistics here. You know, we tend to take our cues from the United States. There is absolutely no doubt in the United States that there is too much retail space. Knowing that I was going to talk to you, I just double-checked the statistics for 2016, and there's roughly 50 square feet of retail space for every man, woman, and child in the United States. In Canada, there's 13 square feet. So we have roughly a quarter of the amount of retail space they have in the United States. To me, there is no doubt in the United States I am going to see suburban malls left vacant. They'll become ghost towns. Uh, you'll be able to go through them almost like uh, Indiana Jones going through the, the pyramids. They'll become relics. And the good news in Canada is I don't think we have too much retail space. Instead, it's not about closing retail spaces but evolving them going forward. And that's really the challenge. So where you can, if, if I was, um, again, Cadillac, Fairview, Rio can, and I, I had a mall, say, that was near an LRT going in, to find a way to incorporate some um, living spaces, condo spaces, so to speak, or perhaps office spaces into my mall, that would make great sense for me looking forward. Maybe not in 2017, but as I look at 2027 or 2032, Doing that stuff now, getting those approvals now, getting the construction started now, will still keep me to be relevant in 10, 15 years. And the abandoned malls that you spoke of are, are, are not really a, a thing of the future. I mean, they've already happened, of course, down in the States. We've seen many, many pictures of, of abandoned malls uh, that uh, used anchor stores like Kmart and other stores that have uh, come and gone, I guess, with various incarnations right now. And, and you're right. I mean, they've just uh, some of them have been paved over. Some of them, I guess, have been uh, reconstituted into other forms. But it's it's a blight. I I, I know that the, those that are, were pushing for infill urban uh, strategies and things like this always pointed to those and said, see what happens when you expand too much. But at the same time, you know, time and place, Marvin, as I say, we go growing up with those things around us, like the center, and I, I still remember the day Lime Ridge Mall opened, that was that was consumer-driven. I mean, we were asking for that sort of stuff. We were. Uh, I, don't, I don't view those as sort of white elephants to, to uh, suburban sprawl. I, I look at them as people who were locked into only one mode of thinking, to think that, as you said, We'll build them all, we'll put a couple of anchor stores, and we're going to just cash in and make lots of money. There was a time in the 50s and 60s when that happened. I think today you've got to be just a little more clever because the consumers are demanding it. Our cities are still the major drivers of our growth in Canada. It's frightening, Bill, how urbanized we have become in less than 100 years, 100 years ago being the end of the First World War. 80% of Canada's population was rural. Today, more than 80%, almost 90% of our population live in cities. But how we live in those cities and how we want to interact with those cities is changing from the suburban model of the 50s and 60s. So to have these big, big parking lots with all that free parking is good, but that's an awful lot of land being sitting there not well utilized to, to keep innovating and saying, well, how can I keep playing with my paradigm? Again, I want to reinforce this idea. Markets, marketplaces have been around thousands of years, and they will continue into the future. We do like the idea of getting a group of merchants together in one spot. It makes our shopping so much easier. But the model of the mall as simply this retail haven, 
the mall of the future might include your fitness club. The mall of the future might include daycare centers. The mall of the future might include a school or a library, along with some housing and, and some other developments that way, really integrated all together, not separated out the way we saw it in the 50s and 60s. And, and by the way, we're not suggesting the ultimate demise of shopping malls, uh, especially in, in urban centers. I mean, you know, the Eaton Center in Toronto seems to be doing quite well. I visited one a couple of years ago, I guess, when we were in Winnipeg that seems to be doing quite well. And, and, and there are other examples of that, too, in, in many other cities where that's happening. But there are going to be some challenges. And, and one of the ones that always gets cited, Marvin, when we talk about the, the problems Sears is having and the problems some of the other stores have been having and, and the, the various uh, incarnations that the, the Bay has gone through over the last number of years, as they always say, well, you know, everybody's moving now to, to it's all on the Internet now. It's all Amazon and everything else now. And and we just seem to say, well, that's inevitable then. We can't do anything about it because everybody's going to online shopping these days. Uh, and I'm sure that's having an impact. But the numbers I have seen on this anyway indicate that, yeah, it's there, but it's not this, this, this uh, you know, retail-eating monster that everybody says it is. Well, let me, let me give you two, two opinions, and I'm going to start with one that is not my own. So I have a wonderful colleague at the School of Business by the name of Nick Bontis. Nick, sure. Nick loves his technology, and he believes that, that you're actually watching, in the case of malls, dinosaurs in their last days of life on this earth. He sees a future driven by Amazon with uh, fleets of drones dropping off products to your home, all the shopping done from the convenience of your home. I don't buy into that model. I appreciate Nick, and I, I value his contributions, and I think intelligent people can disagree on this. Today, online shopping represents 7% of the total. Now, it is the fastest-growing segment, but it's growing from such a very, very small base that even as we look 5, 10 years down the road, 90% of our shopping is still going to happen in bricks-and-mortar stores. Where you can do online shopping, for instance, is when you're buying absolutely standardized goods. So if I need a, I don't know, a compute, piece of computing hardware or I want a book, a book is a book is a book, I don't actually have to go to a store to buy it. Yes, I think we will look for that kind of convenience. But to talk to uh, many of your female listeners, they'll tell you that a, a good Saturday afternoon might be spent at a mall, uh, quote-unquote, shopping without actually buying anything, that social aspect of shopping isn't going away. And even though Amazon has just come out with a service uh, called Prime Wardrobe, where you can, uh, I believe the term they like to use is curate, to curate a collection of clothing items that will be sent to you to try on in the convenience of your own home, buy what you like, ship back what you don't like. Won't that be just wonderful for us? There's still this feeling that there, there's a, you need to actually go to the store, see the selections, because the color is never the same, the fit's never the same, the feel's never the same. You need to do that. So I don't believe the Internet is the, the killer that we think it's going to be at the moment, uh, but it has made a dent. There is no doubt about it. It has made a dent, and if I'm into something standardized, I, I've got to, find, again, find a way to innovate. If you visit the new Indigo uh, or the revised Indigo in Ancaster, it's a, officially a bookstore, but my gosh, the new Indigo is so much more than a bookstore. It incorporates a lot of home design elements. Uh, there's even some food elements in there. They're trying to innovate again to keep themselves relevant in a retail world. Well, and it's not for everybody. I mean, you know, I, we finally acquiesced, uh, I, I guess, about a year or so ago, and I did some online stuff. I got some shirts, long story short. And, and, uh, and by the way, they were short. That was, that was part of the problem. And I, had, I was professionally measured, blah, blah, blah. He'd stick the stuff online. 
and they blew the order. And they said, well, I was so sorry about that, Mr. Kelly. Just send them back at your cost, and we'll fix them and send them back to you. And I said, you know what? I'm out of here. I, 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 there are some things that you just want to physically see and touch uh, instead of doing everything online. And and I, I, I know where Nick's coming from, Nick Modis is coming from, because a lot of people love this stuff. But I, I still think that there are some items that we just would rather see and, and feel and, and be tactile about and, and feel comfortable about that we, okay, I know this is going to work, and then take them home. It's also been one of the biggest impediments to grocery stores. You might remember in the last 20 years hearing of companies called Peapod and there was Grocery Gateway. They're still there, but they haven't caught on the way everyone just imagined them uh, doing because most of us just don't buy boxes of product or tins of product. We now want to buy some fresh fruit, vegetables, meat. But I like my steak marbled just this way. You like a, a cantaloupe that feels just this certain squishiness. Someone else wants a banana that's a little more on the green side. And there's no grocer that can duplicate that process. So they'd work very, very nicely for buying those um, final product, products in boxes and cans but anything fresh. And then the other problem, of course, remains the delivery, the order fulfillment. Um, suppose I live here in, in Hamilton and I say to Peapod, deliver my products at 5 o'clock. That's when I plan to be home from work. But something happens. There's a car accident. Next thing you know, I'm not home till 6. That container of ice cream that I had waiting for me, it's now a container of mush. These are problems that I don't think we can get rid of in this online world. So I, I think both will exist. I think there will be a healthy blend between the two. If I am a retailer, I'm not giving up the ghost, but I have to keep innovating to keep myself relevant in the world we live in today. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. We'll talk again soon. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.